Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is The Solo Collective, and I'm Rebecca Seal. We touched on the idea of loneliness in previous episodes of the podcast with um, Jennifer and with Laurie. And that's because it's such a huge part of being a solo worker. Loneliness has been a huge problem for me. The whole reason I wrote my book was because I was incredibly lonely about six years into my solo working life. In fact, from well before that, but that was when I really realised that it was a major problem and I had to do something about it. So... I would really like to think that conversations like this, which illuminate what loneliness feels like and that everybody feels it, will help other people to maybe not get in quite such a mess as I did. I really wanted to get into it a bit more deeply and I thought that Kimberly Wilson would be a brilliant person to do that with because she's a chartered psychologist and she's written this fantastic book called How to Build a Healthy Brain, which came out last year. She's interested in looking at people and their health as a whole, so she doesn't separate mental health and health. And so she integrates evidence-based nutrition and lifestyle with the psychological therapy that she gives to people. And I think that's a brilliant way of proceeding. Historically, we've treated mental health and physical health as two separate things, but that clearly isn't the case, and we need to be more integrated in our approach. And a lot of her work is to do with prevention, less to do with cures. She really wants to help people to make lifestyle changes which will enable them to avoid hitting a crisis point. And I really feel like this conversation is extremely valuable for anyone who's working by themselves or for themselves because she has concrete ideas about what to do around loneliness if you're feeling it, but also how we understand what it is and how we should feel absolutely no shame for feeling it, that it's a normal part of what it means to be a human. Can I start off by saying I absolutely loved your book? You can tell how much I loved it because it's absolutely full of post-it notes. (laughs) Thank you. It's really kind Um, of me. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. I love your kind of whole body brain approach. Like I love Mm -hmm. the whole idea that we need to think about our mental health as a part of our health in general, because I think that's quite certainly alien, isn't it, to the way that healthcare is practiced in the UK, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't be a revolutionary idea, but it kind of is because we're mm. still working under 400-year-old philosophical ideas that the mind is separate and distinct from the body, you know, that we consider the mind to be immaterial and ethereal, and therefore it's not really amenable to to any real kind of physiological intervention. We can talk at it and maybe we can try some specialised drugs and and try to get the mind under control. But other than that, you know, nothing will will work. Mm. But it's, you know, it's obviously just not true that the mind is an emergent property 
of the brain mm. you know it doesn't fall out of the sky it's an emergent mm. property of the brain and the brain is a physical organ and like your heart like your liver the brain has physiological basic fundamental needs that need to be met for it to work properly and so it's it's just kind of i kind of putting the mind back in the body in that sense you know putting it back into into the physical body and then treating it like a physical organ but yeah, it's not what we've done, whether in a kind of, uh, you know, lay sense or or in medical practice for a very, very long time. Yeah, it, it does feel revolutionary, like you say, it shouldn't. But I've read a lot of books that say things like reduce stress and anxiety. And, you know, I'm an anxious person and I'm always up for trying to get a handle on that. <laughs> um, so I've, you know, I've read I've read a fair amount on the on the topic. But I feel like this is a book that's that's got so much in it, which is concrete and you've chosen the research to refer to so carefully that it it's very convincing and I was thinking of a conversation way back when I was first researching my book solo and I interviewed someone called Bridget Schulte and I said how do we convince people to follow this advice and she said you've always got to take it back to the research you've always got to take got to take it back to the science because that's the most convincing thing and I thought mm-hmm. that that shone through from your book if you can ground it in science then it's it's super convincing it's much more difficult to park ideas as well because you've made mm-hmm. them specific which I think is another interesting aspect of how we tweak our mindsets Thank you. That's really kind. I mean, that was, well, that was the intention because I, I set out and I, I didn't want this to be a kind of theory book that people read and like, oh, that's a nice idea. Mm. Because the the problems that the book is trying to address are very concrete. They're very real. They're right now. And they're really wide scale. You know, that depression is our global, the leading global cause of, of disability. Mm. And in the UK, certainly outside of, of coronavirus homes, Dementia is a leading cause of death in the UK. It's not cancer. It's not heart disease. It's not, you know, complications associated with diabetes. It's dementia and women have twice the risk and people are just kind of walking around not knowing that there's something that you can do about it. Certainly with things like Alzheimer's disease, people just think, oh, well, cross my fingers, you know, hope that I hope that I escape it. It's probably genetic. And it's actually not, you know, less than 5% of Alzheimer's disease cases are genetically driven. The rest is lifestyle is largely lifestyle and and so i really wanted to get that across the kind of urgency of the problems that we're facing in terms of brain and mental health yeah not to terrify people but to kind of get them on board that there this is what you need to do and here are the reasons to do it and i've heard it said that you know come on your point about research that you know people don't need the studies they don't need the research they just need to be told what to do and i I couldn't agree, disagree more with that because that kind of appeal to authority, just, you know, don't ask me why I'm telling you to do this, just do it because, you know, I'm the authority and, and I'm telling you, is A, hugely insulting <laughs> to mm-hmm. other people's intelligence and and the need for us to be internally motivated to do these things. If I'm going to change my life, the only reason I'm going to do it is because it feels meaningful to me. And I think in order to do that, you kind of do have to convince people, here's the problem, Mm -hmm. here's the risk, but here's what you can do. Here's the power that you have to influence this. It's not out of your hands completely. No, it's not completely in your hands, but it's not completely left up to the fates. And I want to give you the tips and the practical takeaways for you to implement as, you know, sometimes immediately some of the the practical things that you can do straight away and to make them as small as possible. Because I think that's 
the the advantage of writing a book like this as a psychologist who works with people one-on-one in behavior change is knowing that in order to get anybody on board to do anything you have to make it as small as possible and so when I'm working with people and you know if they said you know I want to go running three times a week we would go smaller we go even smaller than that and I say can you all I want you to do is to commit to doing one minute a day you know you make it so small that it seems a laughable but b so easy that you would spend more time not doing it than than doing it you know because the thing about behavior change is that your brain changes with repetition it's not about how big you know go big or go home it's go every day like, <laughs> that's the thing it's like the the more you do it the more those pathways are ingrained in your brain and the only way you're going to do it consistently certainly at the beginning is to make it so easy yeah i think that repetition thing is is so much more powerful than we give credit to repetition Uh, is everything you know that you can have all of the the tools and the lists and and the coaches in the world but repetition in terms of how the brain works in terms of building those connections in your brain and everything you do is about connections in your brain and the, the capacity of your brain cells to communicate with one another and that gets stronger with repetition it's called long term potentiation that remembering things doing things you are what you repeatedly do so Mm. repetition is everything yeah oh so that's so fascinating I have been very lonely in my in my time in a a number of different periods of time in my life but the specific one which prompted me to to make this whole thing happen this solo thing happen was about six years into being a solo worker which I've been doing for 12 years now when I just sort of looked up and realized that I was intensely lonely you know, I had my I had my then partner, now husband. Um, we lived together, and that was great. But we, I felt that was kind of I'd narrowed my focus so tightly towards work that everything else had fallen away, and I was I was neglecting every other relationship that I had, apart from a few work related ones, which weren't you know deep and true, and that was what prompted me to start researching how to cope with working by yourself, and then ultimately writing the book in 2019, and and now trying to create this series of conversations to help other people know that if, even if they're on their own, we're all in this together, this, this working by yourself crazy thing. And so loneliness feels like a really important topic to cover here because, because it's so common, so prevalent. But I just don't think that we talk about that enough. And that's why I, I do a lot of talks and I try and say the, the same thing that I just said, like I have been very lonely. And it was also a period of my life where if you'd looked at my kind of social media, it would have looked mm-hmm. great right but I was completely miserable like completely written through me like rock miserable and it took a really long time to kind of get a handle on that and one of the things I think is most difficult about loneliness and I'd love to get your take on this is that when you're lonely this is how it seems to me the thing you need to do the thing you need is other people and that's the hardest Mm. thing to do because Mm. you're you're so kind of weighed down by the experience of of the loneliness and the isolation that asking other people for help or telling other people that that's how you feel is is one of the hardest things to do. So mm-hmm. I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about how one breaks out of that cycle, how and you know how you kind of where do you find the energy? I guess mm-hmm. for that. Yeah, and 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 I think energy is a really good point to come in on that because one of the things that I think people don't really appreciate is that 
loneliness is a full body experience. You know, I think because loneliness is so important to us, you know, as a species, it's so important for us to be engaged and connected with other people because previously in our evolutionary history, it would have been a life or, or death situation. You know, I'm not going to do very well trying to survive on the savannah by myself. Um, survival is all about connections and our relationships. And for that reason, that loneliness triggers the same neural networks as physical pain. And so it it's a stressor, it is a physiological stressor. And when the body experiences stress, I talk about stress as the language the body speaks, whether it's physical from an illness or an injury, or whether it's psychological from work deadlines or loneliness, your whole body is experiencing stress. And that will take energy away from you. So if you feel tired and depleted and lethargic and fatigued, you know, that can be one of the the indicators of, of loneliness. So the tiredness is a real thing the, the, and, and the being weighed down and having no energy. Again, I would always bring it back, I guess, to two things. So one is recognizing, as you say, you know, if you looked on social media, you were shiny, bright, golden, everything was good. And it can give the impression that everybody else is having an amazing time and everything is just great. Um, and I kind of want to say to people, as someone who has worked with hundreds, if not thousands of people by now in my career, people from all kind of echelons of society, people, you know, kind of established and royalty and landed gentry, everyone is miserable. Like, <laughs> not, and not in a constant way, but everyone is struggling with something. Please do not think that it's just you. Don't go online and think everyone else is having a fantastic time and I'm the only one sitting in the corner worrying whether I have enough friends or whether my relationship with my friends is deep enough. Everyone is having these anxieties. So it's it's absolutely not just you is the first thing. So there's a kind of, I think, solace in that. And then to make it, again, make it as small as possible. Can you just text someone? Can you just kind of send out one little emissary of connection and say, hey, you know, how are you doing? And you, and it can sound a little bit clinical, but if, and maybe, you know, I'd love to hear how you pulled yourself out of that, but you can kind of set yourself a plan. Can I message one friend every day or one every other day? So it becomes a habit. So you're, what you're telling yourself is that I'm going to repeat this habit of connection because when you're lonely, what's happened is that you've gotten out of the habit of being connected. You've got into a habit of solitude or isolation and being separate. So you, it's about, again, a type of behavior change. Can I start the habit of connection and, and being engaged with other people? Yeah, I think that's that's really powerful. It, it's um, it's a baby steps point, right. isn't it? Really, <laughs> because I think that's what that's what's difficult is that often when you're when you realise that you're feeling lonely, it feels as though you're going to have to do something grand. You know, you're mm. going to have to do something quite big to climb out of it. And I think that was what paralysed me for a while. Was it was, and also I I part of my experience was strange. Well, not strange. I'm sure it's a very common one, but I was around a lot of people I wasn't mm -hmm. socially isolated mm -hmm. as it were um I had to go to a lot of big events for work and trade shows and all that kind of thing it's just that nobody that I was with knew me 
And in fact, I sent a message to a very old friend a couple of days ago saying, I feel like I haven't seen anyone in a year, and this is true, um, who knew me when I was really young and really stupid. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And can we, please, can we have a drink as soon as the, as soon as it's possible to do yeah. so? Because I think there's something very powerful, isn't there, about knowing that the people that you're with kind of take you for who you are, kind of know your good bits and your bad bits and are, and are so down with all important. of that. It's so important, that idea of being known um, and being seen, kind of having your existence witnessed is so, so, so profound. You know, I feel like there's there's no loneliness quite as as cruel as, say, someone who's in a relationship but feels like their partner doesn't know them or see Mm. them or notice when they're struggling. You know, you can be in the same room, you can be in the same bed, but if you don't feel that that person really knows you, you can feel like the loneliest person on the planet. Mm. So it's it, it's absolutely not about, you know, the number of people that are surrounding you. It, it is that. It's, it's how visible I, am I to those people, which is a part of how safe am I with them? How vulnerable do I feel I can be with them yeah. and still feel accepted? Do I have to be on my best behaviour and, and do I have to present a persona in order to feel that these people will be around me or that I'm acceptable or that I'm performing? Mm. Or can I just be a greasy mess <laughs> and know that that is fine and someone will be there and and they will love me anyway that is yeah. that is the thing yeah yeah that they will love me anyway is, is, is huge isn't it how do we help people not get into the solo working loneliness mess that I got myself into like what are the um <laughs> not to not to be too down on myself but um but when you're solo your working in environment just doesn't allow for the kind of casual social exchanges that mm-hmm. you would get from a traditional job where you go to a place and there are other people there and you travel mm-hmm. to do it. And therefore, those sort of, and some of those shallow connections can be kind of made deeper over time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced by any stretch that a traditional office environment is even a particularly good way to make social connections. I think that they can be quite toxic in some cases and quite mm-hmm. kind of all-consuming so it's not, I don't think it's that we're missing it exactly but inevitably for many of us we literally see less people because of the way that we work so mm-hmm. what could I have done <laughs> what could I have done to to help myself not feel so isolated in the end uh, yeah I think that's that's really tough because when you're you know when you start working solo and you're transitioning to kind of being an independent professional your all of your energy is consumed on making that work you know that all of the anxiety and the worry is you know can I float will it will it happen and and I guess the awareness isn't really there for here are the other things that will help keep me sane whilst I'm in the midst of trying to do this thing and I think you're absolutely right it's about those casual connections those you know when you're passing someone's desk and you know you notice that they're reading a book that you like these little things those little opportunities those moments of serendipity are are, Mm. are less likely to happen and so you kind of have to in as least cynical way as possible engineer them and that I think means doing things like you know joining a regular yoga class if you if you have private yoga quit your private yoga and go to a yoga class so that you're seeing the same people over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, setting up maybe breakfast meetings with a colleague, 
I think in my profession, peer supervision, like can you find another group of solo people and you make yourself a little a little gang that meet up on a regular basis, make, making connections with kind of solo and, and freelance organizations and groups. And also, you know, get a group hobby, um, join a walking group, join a choir. It's something that puts you in the, in the midst of people over and over again, because mm. that's how we make friends. It's, can I have a repeated connection with this person? And yeah. then, you know, our barriers come down and then we can start talking about incidental things and then we've made a connection and then we can go for coffee and, and something has happened. But you kind of have to engineer them. And we need to accept it takes time. Absolutely right. I, I think one of the things that I found quite difficult, for example, when my eldest daughter started school, one of the things that I... I mean, I found that quite a socially anxious time anyway, <laughs> just because it was like meeting, you know, 30 new people for me as well as for her. Um, obviously more <laughs> of a big deal for her, but, you know, nonetheless, I, I was quite anxious about meeting parents. And so I guess I kind of had it in my head for some reason that it would be that friendships would develop quite quickly. Mm. And if I wasn't in friendships quite quickly, that I was somehow failing or unlikable, mm. or, you know, that I, w- I was never going to be part of the gang. And which is hilarious, because I sound like a 13 year old. But I, you know, I'm now kind of a couple of years into having kids at school. And, and now relationship, there are lovely relationships that surround all of that stuff. Mm. But they take a while. And that, you know, that doesn't mean they're not important or anything like that. But that repetition thing of, of just being around people over and over and over again is what allows a relationship to develop I I guess I had it in my head that I should be like mm. you know it should just happen so I I wonder if other people feel that way that there's a kind of a, a FOMO thing right like you're yeah. kind of if you're not in the gang immediately you never will be and you're still alone kind of <laughs> but th- that's the anxiety isn't it because lots of people will have made friends or social connections at school or at university and and you when you look back at it you think oh we met on the first day and we were best friends straight away but actually you were in lessons together for mm. five, six hours a day for years. Like that is what did it. <laughs> that, yeah. was the, that was the thing. You sat with each other in lectures for hours and hours. That's what did it. And, and the problem as adults is that we don't have as many opportunities for that outside of a workplace. You know, work is where that happens. Work becomes a new school. Mm. But if you're working solo, then you have fewer and fewer opportunities for that to happen. Yeah. And so you kind of have to, yeah, regenerate that experience of kind of being back in school yeah. so that you can see those people again. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. 
maybe now would be a good time to think about what the implications of loneliness are and whether Mm -hmm. they're as severe in your view as some of the kind of headlines have suggested because I know there's research that came out mm, 2008 2009 I think that suggested Mm -hmm. that loneliness is as bad for long-term health as smoking is and again I don't want to frighten anybody with this bit of the conversation but I guess Mm -hmm. we need to know why we have to take this seriously Yeah, and it comes back to loneliness and isolation as a stressor, as a risk to life. And your, you know, your entire body is set up to help you to live. That's all it cares about. Keeping you alive, mostly so you can reproduce and to make sure that that offspring does well. Even if you don't have that offspring, your body is always hoping. Um, (laughs) So it's always (laughs) organized in a way that is, is going to try to draw you to the safest environment for longevity. And as I say, I wouldn't do, I'm not going to be great trying to hunt down an antelope by myself. So the safest thing for us is to be in groups. And so being away from groups, being away from others is painful. It's painful and it's stressful. And the reason that chronic loneliness, because, you know, being alone and, and, loneliness are different things but why chronic loneliness is so bad for your health is because of this chronic stress and it's chronic stress which is kind of the big threat to well-being because elevated stress hormones are just like having a constant alarm signal going off in the body and we know for example that chronic elevated stress hormones can be corrosive to brain cells. It can actually cause the brain to atrophy. It can um, cause chronic inflammation in the body and, and, you know, increase your risk for illness and and viruses and things like that, that will undermine your well-being and undermine your psychological resilience. And so, yes, it's not, you know, there's no point in terrifying people for no reason, but it's kind of, as I say, it's worth making the case so that you can take the steps and you know why you're taking the steps to try to improve the situation for you, for yourself. And I think what you say in the book about trying to improve things before a crisis, I mean, which is basically your whole philosophy anyway, but, mm-hmm. but that, that idea of, of kind of trying to take, take steps to prevent things becoming acute is, is really important. I ended up going back to having um, therapy last year, which I've done several times in my adult life, and I highly recommend, as I know you would. Therapy is the best. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really, it really is. My sort of anxiety symptoms, as it were, were reaching something of a crescendo, a crescendo in, um, I don't know, the early stages of the pandemic, um, mm. which I think is a natural response and one that a lot of people were having. But I felt like I had to do something to kind of stamp it out a bit. I had to, I couldn't let it escalate because I'd been there before and I knew, mm-hmm. I knew what it would do. And so it was an interesting, it was an interesting experience to, to, to say, I need, I need help because I know what this will look like further down the line. And I know mm. what this will do to my life as a whole. Not that I would have had some enormous crisis. It, it, it's mm-hmm. just horrible being anxious all of the time. And I think that, I think we need to get those stories out a bit more that, people are in therapy (laughs) and people are asking for help and people Mm -hmm. are struggling you know even people who look on paper as though things things must be okay so loneliness has Mm long-term negative implications I'm gonna say something you know wild and outrageous the pandemic hasn't helped all this has it (laughs) 
It's not been great. No, no. It's not. <laughs> no. And in so many ways. So in terms of anxiety, of course, there was a kind of sea level rise in anxiety because there was, as we were all told, a deadly threat out there, which was invisible. And up until very recently, largely uncontrollable, manageable, but not controllable. Um, And so anxiety goes up. And then we were also told not to spend time with anyone. Yeah. Um, So the, the, the things that help us to manage stress and it's so so interesting there are so many studies through the the psychological research literature that show that you know if I'm anxious about going to the dentist or if I'm anxious about having um, an injection or needles or if I'm anxious about anything just the presence of somebody I know having a sibling or a loved one in the environment brings down my stress levels, brings down my cortisol levels. It just makes it easier to cope. They don't need to be doing anything, saying anything, holding my hand. They just need to be present. And so the the kind of double whammy of the pandemic was, hey, everyone, there's a really anxiety provoking event happening, but also you can't be close to your loved ones to help you to manage and tolerate the stress of it all. So, you know, we there's a, there's a level of human resilience which I think got us through the first ones the first Mm. lockdowns but I think certainly the winter lockdown people really really began to struggle um and and felt very fatigued very isolated very anxious and very angry Mm -hmm. um because anger is almost a last resource because at least in anger we feel potency you know I feel like I'm doing something when I'm angry versus feeling helpless and isolated and alone and very scared. So I think that's why, which is another segue, but um, that's why we saw that rise in protests and people not wanting to wear masks and not wanting to do lockdown and and an and increase in kind of social agitation. I think it was a response to the kind of prolonged anxiety, isolation and helplessness people had felt. That's interesting. So that's another kind of consequence of, of- of loneliness in a way is it mm-hmm. sort of extreme responses to it's kind situations? of it's kind of protest you know people you know in a, in a in a psychological sense so we know in attachment theory for example you know when and you'll, you'll have seen it with your children that when you leave the room when they were very small they want to see where you're going be where you're going would cry and that's their protest you know they don't want to be left alone it's painful it's scary it's frightening and they will protest that through crying and shouting and screaming and until you come back. And I think what we saw, the literal protests were on an unconscious psychological level were a feature of that. I don't want to be on my own anymore. I don't want to be isolated anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm done. This is my threshold. I want things to go back to normal. That's so interesting. Yeah, that makes it, that makes a huge amount of sense. What does your working life look like in terms of solo time? Because you must have written your book basically on your own, I'm, I'm assuming. But your practice, of obviously, when you're in clinical practice, you won't be by yourself. That would be weird. Well, <laughs> it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> just doing my therapy phase to an empty chair. Yeah. <laughs> but still, you know, I, I went from working in a group practice to working by myself. And that was that was double-edged it meant that I was happier with my working practices and the kind of ethos and ethics around what I was doing but I did miss out you know I I really liked working with the office team you know the admin they were great and we I would go in after clinic or at lunchtime and just have a chat and have a debrief and it was just 
nice, you know, to feel like there was people around and you could just have a quick um, chat with. And that was something to Trent that was difficult. Once I got out of the the kind of stress of setting up my own practice, it was like, oh, also, <laughs> I don't have a team now. <laughs> I don't have um, colleagues, so to speak. And so, and, and so with writing the book, what I made sure of was that I did that in a shared workspace, actually. Oh, so I okay. didn't do it at home. I rented a shared workspace or, you know, joined a, a group um, so that even though I was writing my book by myself, I could put my laptop down and have a chat with someone. And, you know, I could go to the shops and say, does anybody want anything? And it's just, mm. you know, those little things that made it a much less lonely endeavor. And even when I finished writing the first draft of the manuscript and I put the laptop down, I had a little cry because it was so exhausting. Um, and that there were people there that, as I say, kind of witnessed that moment with mm. me. And it's mm. things like that, as I say, the witnessing of your experience, the witnessing of of your life is is the thing. Yeah. I can so identify with that. There have been so many moments when I've been on my own, when something either momentous and wonderful or horrible has happened work-wise. And I've kind of looked around and thought, there's no, there's no one here to, there's no one here to validate this or to vent to about it. I've, I'm much better now at having, at creating a, a kind of a, co- a colleague system mm-hmm. and not just depending on my husband to be the person that I can kind of vent and share with. But I think I think that that's really, I have never thought about it expressly in the terms you just put it in, but that idea of being witnessed is it's really, it's a really intense loss, I think, when you're when you're working by yourself. If you don't recreate that experience, not being witnessed is actually a really, really isolating feeling. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that you well, a number of things about the way that you chose to write your book are really interesting. It's really interesting that you didn't do what a lot of people do and assume that you had to be in a garret somewhere um, alone, slaving away <laughs> over your writing, that you realised that you needed to be around other people. Because I think quite a lot of people assume that whatever solitary work they're doing has to be literally solitary. They have mm. to they have to do it in isolation. And um, I had a sort of similar experience in that I realised during one of the millions of lockdowns, can't remember which, that I, that I couldn't just continue to work from home because of my kids, that it was kind of unfair on them. And it was very difficult to create boundaries. It was fine when they weren't around, but when they were around, it was really difficult for both them and me to kind of detach me as a Mm mum. And so I, I was really lucky and I found a really inexpensive room to rent very close to the, to our house, which I share with somebody else who also um, works by herself. And I didn't do it because I was trying to get rid of my sense of loneliness and I wasn't feeling wildly lonely at the time, but the kind of mental health benefits of it have been extraordinary. It's been, I mean, I'm going to say it's been life-changing and that's from someone who spent the previous 11 and a half years working (laughs) um, in the spare bedroom. And like just that thing of saying hello to people at the beginning of the day, which you can create mm-hmm. in loads of other ways. You, you could do it in a library. You could do it in a co-working mm-hmm. space. You could do it in, a, in the same cafe that you always go to on a Tuesday and a Thursday. I mean, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be anything kind of too solid or financially cumbersome. But I, yeah, I've really, and it goes back to your thing about repetition. It's that, you know, I go to the same place. I say hello to the same people. It reinforces my sense of structure and routine. And and that and that thing of saying to someone, do you want a do you want a cup of tea? 
I'm just going down the road. Do you want to like, mm-hmm. there's something very grounding about that experience, which I hadn't realized that I was lacking. And although mm-hmm. I do believe very strongly in the power of working from home and there are masses of positives for it, I'm, I'm in no sense saying people shouldn't work from home. I just think if you can kind of build some of that into your working life, then I, I think it's got kind of mental health benefits that are unanticipated. Mm-hmm. Would you would you agree? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's that thing. I think on some level, we all walk around with a deep unconscious question that is something like, if I wasn't here, would anybody notice? Hmm. And, you know, on one level, that's a big existential question. And that's about, you know, meaning of life and all of that. But on a much smaller level, it's what impact do I have on the world around me? And I think if I were writing my book, hold away in my spare bedroom on my own, it would be very easy for me to think, this, I mean, who knows where I am? Who, who knows? Who cares? What difference does this make? But, you know, even I would, I would, sometimes I would take a break from the shared workspace and I would work in my local coffee shop. And it was, I was so, so touched because I, you know, I wouldn't necessarily kind of open with what I was doing. But the, the the people who worked there would say, oh, you're always writing. What are you doing? And I'm doing this. And it became, you know, something that they we would chat about. And they would say, you know, good luck. I can't wait to see how it comes out. And some, you know, someone's interested now. Someone's yeah. interested in what I'm doing. And I think the grounding that you talk about is is almost I'm here and I exist and someone can see me, you know, back mm. to that idea of witnessing that mm. I'm doing a thing and people can see me and we can do that for each other. We can witness each other's experiences and we can keep each other in mind. And that's so important psychologically, being born in mind. Is someone thinking about me? You know, do I matter? Yeah, that's so fascinating. I wonder if that's part of the attraction of co-working spaces as well, like dedicated co-working spaces, because they've always been created with the aim of helping you do whatever it is you want to do. Like they're, they're kind of overarching, the good ones anyway, um, mm-hmm. have got a kind of overarching goal of kind of, of spurring you along as an individual. I wonder if that kind of filters through in a, in a sort of positive way. Do you Do you think, I mean, it's hard to know because obviously... We don't know how pe- how much people will be able to get together in big in big kind of co-working spaces. But I, one of my kind of hunches is that small co-working spaces might be the next thing that kind of mm-hmm. becomes a big deal. Do you think that? Do you think people will go back to co-working in that way? I feel like people need to. I think I think people I th- will. I think they will. Um, and just kind of anecdotally, I think people are coming back to them, and. The less that we work in offices, it's going to be it's, it's going to be the small local office. It's almost like the corner shop office. We're going to pop down. We're going to do a bit of work for a couple of hours, and then we'll pop to the shops and go home. You know, it's going to be something like that. It's a much more kind of low key, more integrated, free style kind of way of working for a lot of people. And hopefully, that will mean that it's a bit more relaxed. You know, that we don't feel like someone is over our shoulder or you know for people who work in in call centers someone's timing how long it takes you to go to the loo in this kind of oppressive way that offices can be sometimes but that people can feel what we need to feel which is that our work is valuable we're being witnessed but we also have autonomy that's a nice combination Mm, mm, yeah which is what the working from home what I would like to call a working from home revolution and I hope it 
actually does turn out to be that, I think that's what that offers. It it offers you autonomy in a way that you've never had before as a kind of working society. And I'd be delighted if that was allowed to continue. And I will kind of, I will fight for that. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I mean, revolution. I will. Beaver the work from home revolution. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for this conversation. I, um, I've absolutely loved it. And I really, 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 really love your book, How to Build a Healthy Brain. I think, um, I think so everybody much. should read it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. There's so much to take from what Kimberly said. I think I'm going to go back and listen to it a couple of times so that I can take some of her wisdom and kind of really apply it to my solo working life. I'd also like to know where she was six years ago. I could really have done with some of this then. I think we just, we need to, we need to think quite carefully about loneliness and maybe it's something that should be in the kind of how to be freelance guides, not so much, you know, how to do your taxes and all of that stuff, but just a reminder that at some point on the solo working journey, you may well feel lonely. And here are the tools to try and stop that happening, or at the least make it better when it does inevitably happen. Maybe we will feel less lonely when we realise that it's such a universal experience. You know, we're not on our own. We are in this experience together. That was the last of our 12 episodes of The Solo Collective, which feels like an extraordinary thing to say. I really hope that you have enjoyed listening to them as much as we've enjoyed making them. All of the other episodes are available for you to listen to whenever you fancy. And if you like what you hear, then please do leave us a review or a star rating wherever you get your podcasts. The Solo Collective will be back soon for season two. So keep an eye out for that. and We look forward to joining you then. If there's anyone that you would like to hear as part of the Solo Collective, then please do get in touch and let us know. And I'm really grateful that you have been part of the Solo Collective. You have been listening to a Chalk and Blade original, The Solo Collective, with me, Rebecca Seal. Produced by Laura Hyde, with support from Fatuma Keira, original music by Dee Plume, and mixed by Alex Portfelix. Chalk and Blade. 